Hello and welcome to Dior Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the artists who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. One of the most unique and memorable collaborations since Kim Jones became artistic director of Dior Men was the autumn-winter 2021 collection with the artist Peter Doig. Critically acclaimed, adored by museum curators, and sought after by collectors around the world, Doig's work has been part of our cultural consciousness since he emerged in the early 1990s. He is, I have to admit, one of my personal artistic heroes, so it is a thrill to welcome him to our show. We're going to cover a lot of ground in today's episode, talking about Peter's life, work, and many passions. So, without further ado, Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, yeah. I believe you're in London right now, but recently you spent quite a bit of time in Zermatt, Switzerland, which is a much beloved destination for skiers. As a skiing fanatic, your love of the sport runs especially deep. Your art since the early 90s often has featured slopes and skiers. You even published a book in 2007 called The Wonders of Skiing. Can you tell us more about this interlinking of art and skiing for you? Well, I think that, um, yes, I mean, I have a, a history of skiing in, in my life and it's something I've enjoyed and uh, been very passionate about. In fact, probably before even ever considering I could be an artist, uh, I thought I would just like to be a skier, not a competitive skier, but a someone who skied, like a kind of ski bum, I guess you call them. The way skiing and ski imagery came into my, my artwork uh, happened quite a bit later, and that was in the, um, I guess, around the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. And I have to say it was, it felt like a kind of taboo, this kind of idea of, um, you know, mixing sport, especially something as, I don't know, at the time, just so sort of, non-art-like as skiing and ski fashion and um, making paintings about seem like it's like you can't really go there it's too sort of it's too postcardy it's too picturesque it's but I mean it's stuck with you clearly because recently you opened an exhibition in Zermatt can you tell us more about the show well I wanted it to be a surprise in the sense that um, Zermatt is not really an art destination and there's no galleries like there are in some of these other resort towns like Samaritz and Gestad and places like that. Zermatt is very much um, a place for skiing and, and of course, mountaineering because of the Matter Matterhorn. Having said that, it's, you know, a spectacularly beautiful place. All sorts of people pass through there. And the idea was to put on an exhibition that was almost like a secret, really. It started with, um, the idea was just to have a sort of placard on the street with an announcement on the day of the show and invite just a very small handful of people, which is what we did. And um, it's just sort of, um, you know, just, just happening word of mouth as kind of as we speak now. You know, recently I've been glued 
to the uh, Winter Olympics. Your work is so well known internationally that, that many of the countries you've lived in are keen to claim you as their artistic success story. But I'm curious to know which country did you root for during the Winter Olympics? Or were you even interested in watching the sports? Um, I didn't watch as much as I'd, I'd have liked to, sadly. Partly because of the ice hockey. Once again, they didn't allow the professionals to play. They blamed it on COVID, but it was um, a cheap excuse, I thought. The National Hockey League wouldn't allow the professionals to come. So that is always one of the greatest sporting events as far as I'm concerned, because it's the the best of the best. And there's only like five or six countries that actually compete for that. And it happens really just during the Olympics now. And so sadly that didn't happen. But I would root for, even though I'm not really Canadian, I would root for Canada, I think, because I spent, you know, all my childhood winters there. You yourself have led quite a nomadic existence between Edinburgh, Trinidad, Canada, London and, and Switzerland. But you've also said that you're just one of those people who don't feel like they're from anywhere. You moved back to Trinidad in 2002 after having spent time there as a child, I think from the age of two to seven. What compelled you to return to the Caribbean? Well, it first came about because um, my close friend, Chris Ophelia, the artist, was offered a, a residency there in 2000. And he knew that I'd spent time there as a child and asked me if he should go. And I said, I said, yes, you must go. And I said, and asked them if um, they would consider me as well because I had this connection to Trinidad and in fact had not been back until that point in time. And so I returned in 2000 um, with Chris and we spent a month there and um, so much came back to me, so much that I uh, remembered from my childhood. And I found I met so many interesting people from you know all walks of life, artists as well, of course. And I just thought it'd be a great, place to sort of reconnect to. Um, I kind of wanted to get out of London. I had, at the time, three young kids, and um, it was it just felt like a, a good chance of allowing them to have some of the kind of itinerant life that, that I'd had as a child. I'd love to talk more about the Caribbean life later on in this episode, but perhaps we'll just go back a little bit. Um, you studied art at Wimbledon and the Chelsea School of Art. You were also a student at Central St. Martins between 1980 and 1983. And during your time there, a number of now famous fashion figures came into your orbit, including John Galliano, Stephen Jones, Lee Bowery. How did this overlap between art and fashion impact your thinking then and now? Well, yeah, I mean, St. Martin Martin's was the most significant um, college experience I had by, you know, by a hundredfold, really. It was really um, an incredible place, wow. especially at the time, because, you know, we were on the edge of Soho. All the nightlife in Soho was kind of somehow connected to the art school, either, you know, run by art students or people connected to the art school or even some of the, the sort of more older dive-like clubs were frequented by some of our tutors. Hmm. It was very, felt very, very much part of our, our world. And St. Martin's, uniquely, I think, amongst art schools, had this, you know, this, even then, a very famous fashion department. And the students had a lot of, you know, style and swagger. But also they were as curious about us as we were about them. <laughs> so we were kind of, we socialized a lot together and, um, you know, built up these friendships that some may say or may have thought were unlikely. But... Um, some of those friendships, you know, continue to this day, you know. 
The New Yorker writer and critic Calvin Tompkins called you a virtuoso of the unpredictable. And for many, your collaboration with Dior in 2021 was totally unexpected. I'm sure you've been approached by fashion houses on many occasions. Why did you decide to work with Dior and Kim Jones? Uh, well, actually, I'd never been asked. Um, no, I'd never been oh. asked before. And um, it's not something that I ever, you know, kind of, wish for or even thought about I hadn't even thought about it actually I mean I'd sort of you know taken a glance at uh, a disparaging glance <laughs> at some some other <laughs> artists um, collaborations with fashion houses yeah. <laughs> wasn't really to my taste to be honest but I didn't even think oh what would I do if I was given that you know that opportunity I just thought oh no but it was actually through a very close friend called Jerry Stafford who's a very old friend of Kim's and a very old friend of Stephen Jones's whom I also know um, from way, way back. In fact, um, I actually helped Stephen take his hats to Paris on the very first occasion. He made, made hats for the, the runway shows there in 1984. We went oh, wow. by boat train with hats and all the hats in old suitcases. He made hats from Mugler, Gautier, um, and I think Claude Montana too. Well, Stephen Jones is, of course, a legend. Yeah, a legend. He was a le- he was he was a legend then, really. I mean, I think he was a legend to us all. And I think that um, what you have to remember or, or imagine is that the fashion the fashion students were far more sort of high profile and sort of um, seen than the um, the art students were. It was much. It was it was it was so difficult for a young artist to get a break in those days, or even have their work, you know say, featured in a magazine, which was the only way people could see things, you know, pre, pre um, the internet. Social media. Yeah. So, so you know, my contemporaries, not just St. Martin's, but Middlesex as well, and Kingston, um, all those fashion schools were, you know, were, were getting um, noticed and written about and photographed and, and also opportunities like the one I just mentioned of, of Stephen Jones in Paris. So there was more friendship and mutual respect rather than being competitive with, uh, you know, the fashion students. Can I, can you say that? <laughs> I don't think there was any competitive uh, feelings whatsoever. I think it was just, it felt like a different world. And, um, you know, we all went to, the, you know, we went to many of the same nightclubs and um, it was, I think there was a lot of respect, put it that way. I think the assumption with these kinds of collaborations is that artists are fairly removed, uh, you know, handing over perhaps a few images to the design team for their use. But but you were unusually involved in the design process from the beginning. Over five months, you dug into the Arc Dior archives, you designed new motifs, you worked by hand on a selection of hats with Stephen Jones, you incorporated you know, pass works into new clothing and accessories. It was all very considered. And, and even the presentation, uh, I think you designed, you designed the stage set of the stacked boom boxes that referenced Maracas in, in Trinidad, which is, um, I think a beach club you've painted a, a number of times. In what ways was this different from your thinking in planning an art exhibition? Well, I think that working with Kim, and Stephen Jones, the Joneses. Um, they were both extremely ex- inclusive and they, they welcomed me, you know, in, in a big way, really, and allowed me to have, um, to be in on all the, all the design meetings. I mean, it's, it's something that I, I, I asked if I, could, if I could be part of because I thought that, you know, if you're going to do it, let's try and um, 
you know, out of curiosity, find out as much as I can about their world and, um, you know, everything down to, you know, choice of fabrics and colors and um, even, even, you know, <laughs> presumptuously, you know, presenting drawings of what a pair of trousers might look like. <laughs> the design <laughs> itself. <laughs> and then, you know, Kim, Kim also has got, you know, great interest in music. He's got a, um, he, he's, you know, he'd been to Trinidad, um, you know, many, many years ago. And um, I don't know, he, he, when he came to my, my, uh, my, my place in the first meeting, he saw these, um, these loudspeakers that I have that are um, old cinema loudspeakers from the 1950s. And he was the one who said, you know, he's the one who suggested, oh, maybe we could do something with these for the stage set. I didn't know that. And so, yeah, it, it was. And, and then we, and so I then started working on um, a stage set and not just a stage set, but also a um, selection of music. I mean, it was, it was the music was definitely a, a collaboration between, um, you know, myself and Kim and um, DJs. My nephew was one of the DJs and then Honey Dijon and George Stubbe. It was a real, it was a real interesting mix, I felt, that brought that soundtrack together. Kim told me that you were also very intrigued by how, you know, say some of the effect of your watercolors would translate onto cashmere, how the embroidery would bring your characters to, to life. Um, uh, and I think the show invitation really set the tone. It was, it was a painting you made based on a 1949 photograph of Christian Dior himself wearing a masked lion costume designed by Pierre Cadin. I found it very interesting that of all the images, um, this was the one you chose. It was about dressing up and having fun with it. And of course, the lion is also a recurring motif in your work. What drew you to that particular image? Well, I, I mean, I think, Initially, it was the excitement of seeing, you know, Dior himself dressed up as a lion. I mean, I thought, and we were already starting to use the lion motif. So it kind of, in a way, compounded the whole thing. And I just felt, you know, here we, here we really have something. And I think it, as you say, it was, it was um, the thrill of, of, of getting dressed up. Um, and, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about that, that photo, yes, he's dressed up, but he's also got this kind of this immaculate suit on as well. So he's kind of like it's a mixture of like this. It's almost like it's like almost like it's how it's done properly. It's kind of going to carnival, but with a pair of you know incredible trousers on. <laughs> like he has, so it's kind of like it was a ball rather than a car, like a like a, a like a carnival. And I think that was in a way summed up um, maybe. The kind of there's playful elements in the collection, but then there's also this kind of rigor as well that uh, that uh, is. I thought that was important, you know. Not, I mean, not not my choice necessarily, but that seemed to be what was emerging through the design process. It resonated with a lot of people. Speaking of dressing up, um, another thing, you know, one thing that people may not know about you is is your stint as a dresser at the English National Opera. <laughs> one of the images in the collection was taken from your 2004 painting, Gastoff, uh, which featured a selfie of you and I think um, fellow artist Hayden Cottam in military outfits taken at the Colosseum during that period of your life. Um, why did you decide to include this very personal memento within the collection? Well, it's interesting again. I mean, um, there's a connection with Kim's very first collection. He had uh, used um, 
you know, the idea of the military costume and also the way that military costumes uh, were worn, um, like going back to the the Blitz era and um, early eighty, early nine, early eighties, rather club uh, in London, where people were going to um, like theatrical costumers at like Foxes and buying all their old stock to wear to um, to nightclubs post Blitz, really. And the painting, I made the painting. <coughs> Um, yes, based on a photograph of myself and my friend Hayden when we worked as dressers. It was during a performance, uh, a Nuriev performance of Petrushka. And two of the two of the dancers that we were dressing um, didn't turn up. It was the it was the penultimate performance of, of, uh, of the season. And I think they'd had a little few too many drinks the night before. And so Hayden and I were con- were convinced to squeeze into the costumes and then, you know, make our stage debut at the Colosseum. Propel yourself yeah, so we, <laughs> on, on exactly. the stage. So we have this one photograph that remains, and, that, and I use that as a kind of source of the figures um, in this painting. And going back full circle to your personal interest, you continued the collaboration with Kim and Dior with the Capsule Ski Collection. I can imagine that was extra fun for you because of your uh, you know, love of the sport. I think, I think what happened was that... Um, I got so carried away when I first started um, coming up with ideas for the the winter, the men's collection, that a lo- I thought I'd be able to design sort of like, you know, puffer coats and ski clothing and stuff like this. So I came with rather too many examples of, of that, that world. And so they sort of said, well, maybe Peter should do the ski capsule as well and then push that stuff towards that. And I think it was, it was a good split, actually. Well, clearly it worked. Um, let's talk a little bit about art history and your work as an artist. You emerged as an artist in the UK at a time when the YBA, Young British Artists Group, was bursting onto the scene. You weren't specifically tied to the group. Was it because you were primarily a figurative painter when painting was supposed to be dead? Um, I think it was two things. One, I was by no means young. <laughs> I was too old to be a YBA. And also, I didn't go to Goldsmiths or any of the associated colleges. And my work, you know, wasn't um, seemingly conceptual in the same ways that um, a lot of their work was. I mean, I think for the most part, the original YBA's work, you could say that it was conceptually minded. And also, um, a lot of it had a kind of manufactured look, whereas my stuff was kind of the opposite and, and purposely opposite. It was very much made by hand, quite sort of um, homely as well as, um, you know, it was it was this, not just in the way it was made, but also like in the subject. I kind of, in a way, I kind of wanted to do the absolute opposite of what I was seeing um, being made by those contemporaries particularly. Was it just more important for you as an artist to forge your own path and stand alone? Well, I think I was quite lucky because, um, you know, for whatever reason, pe- people um, were also taking notice of what I was doing at the same time um, as they were of the YBAs. And um, I think that the YBAs, they brought a great deal of attention to this this country. Um, many, many people who would never have considered looking for contemporary art began you know, appearing on these shores and trawling around the studios of, you know, looking at, and, you know, subsequently galleries started opening up and, um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of opportunities started to happen uh, um, on the back of the, of the YBAs. 
I just so happened to have, you know, returned to college as a kind of mature student. So I was in my early 30s. And um, so my work was starting to pop up in exhibitions around the same time as some of the artists you mentioned. And um, yeah, so as I say, on the kind of the back of the YBAs, I was, I, I, I think my work became quite visible. Even back then, your approach was vastly different. Uh, you were, through your art, mining the past. Your paintings in the 90s refer to the history of art uh, and modernist architecture, showing traces of Rousseau, Bonnard, Munch, Hopper, and even Le Corbusier. Are those figures still as influential to you? And who are some of the biggest influences upon your work now? Um, I think I still look, um, you know, to, I guess, um, post-impressionism. Um, I think there's, I think a lot happened in painting very, very sort of swiftly uh, post, say, 1915 or whatever. And I think pe art movements happened and a lot of stuff got cancelled out. I think there's still a lot of room for growth in some of those areas of painting where um, figuration was still a, a being used, um, different effects of light. I don't know. I just think there's, there's still discovery to be made in, in, in painting. And your work, there's also this timeless quality. Is that timelessness something you admire in other artists' work or strive for in your own paintings and drawings? Um, it depends, because I think sometimes, you know, you see art that is firmly rooted in its time and uh, that that's not a problem, really. Um, other art, yeah, you say, well, that could have been made today, even though it was made like a hundred years ago. So it is an interesting balance. Um, I think that one of the th one of the artists who I really admired was um, Edward Hopper, in the sense that his work always looked of its as you you could tell when it was made by just by the way people dressed or what their hairstyle was like, for instance or what the cars looked like, but somehow it also manages to transcend time. Um, that's, that's quite unique to me. Nicholas Sorota, former Tate director, now the chair of Arts Council England, said your paintings capture a contemporary sense of anxiety and melancholy and uncertainty. And that was before the pandemic. So how have the past two years impacted, you know, uh, your, your, your work? I mean, strangely, I, I, I think I'm one of the one of the artists, or one of the few artists who found it quite difficult to work during the pandemic. I mean, I, I was actually very thankful for um, the collaboration with um, Dior because it came about in the midst of it. Um, I wasn't particularly enjoying um, working during the pandemic. I mean, partly for personal reasons. Um, yeah, I just found it difficult to to escape. I mean, I come, I have a big family, and um, it was difficult for me to just to get away and um, and uh, and be on my own. And one of the other things that you worked on during the pandemic was your um, survey show in Japan, which I uh, which was your first institutional exhibition taking place in 2020 at the National Museum of Modern Art in Tokyo. Despite the lockdown and travel restrictions, it was a blockbuster exhibition uh, by all means and had record breaking attendance. How did its success make you feel? Did you even get to go see or install the show? Well, interestingly, um, we arrived in in Tokyo at the very, very beginning of the the pandemic, and and you know we didn't even really know it was a pandemic, and 
we couldn't even really get any advice as to whether or not we should travel or not, like real advice. We, we were sort of vaguely worried that it was the wrong time to be traveling. Um, we arrived in Tokyo and 99% of people in the airport were wearing masks. Immediately put one on, but I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I thought, felt like I was sort of arriving in a sort of plague zone or something. And um, I thought, oh my God, this is a disaster. We're here for, you know, two weeks installation and um, people are coming from abroad. I'm going to have to tell people not to come. But anyway, the show opened up um, two weeks later um, and it, it still hadn't really, really kicked off yet. It opened on a Tuesday, but it was close. They shut it down on a Thursday. Um, and we had to, yeah, oh, no. we had to kind of leave Japan quite quickly. We left, we left, I think, 10 days before we did intended to. But the show did open up again. And as you say, you know, I think a good number of people saw it considering. So I was there for the installation and I was there for the opening. Um, it, was a, it was a fantastic experience. I, I invited every Japanese student that I've taught over the years. I gave them like two years notice and they all, they pretty much all came from Dusseldorf and from London and ones who've returned to live in um, Japan. So it was, that was a, that was a, a great occasion for us all. Another show that you were also a part of was the Tate Britain Life Between Islands Caribbean British Art from 1950s to now, which traces the breadth and impact of Caribbean British art. Could you elaborate on that show? Well, I'm not from the Caribbean, but I have spent, um, you know, a good number of years there. Actually, probably lived longer in Trinidad full time than I've lived anywhere else in my life. Interestingly, um, I when they asked me to be in the show, I asked if you know I, if we could specifically show paintings that Derek Walcott had written about because I thought it would be a nice way of sort of including his voice in the show. Unbeknownst to me at the time, um, they'd also included my old friend Isaac Julian's film Omerus, which features Derek. So yeah, and it was I was obviously a, a great honor to be included in that show and uh, to be to be included in, the, in what's you know considered to be the history of um, you know art made here or there. Um, you know, bridging these two these two countries is important. There was a great sense of communities uh, and cel of celebration uh, in that show. You're not the type of artist that works with teams of studio assistants, but looking at your work beyond painting, there's in fact a huge amount of collaboration from artists like Chris O'Feely, Che Lovelace, Denzel Forrester, to choreographer Michael Clark, curator Matthew Higgs, uh, and of course, Nobel Prize winning poet and playwright Derek Walcott. How important are those collaborations to the rest of your practice as an artist? Vitally. <laughs> I, I think that, um, you know, in some cases, like with Chris Ophelia, you know, we, we, we became friends when um, we were students. Like he was a, he was still doing his bachelor's and I was doing my master's because we're 10, there's 10 years between us. And, um, you know, we, we built up a friendship and I, I think it's, probably even reflected in our work. Probably there's like influences from one to the other and definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then admiration in the case of um, Denzel. I didn't know Denzel until recently, but I, I remembered his work uh, when he was a student at the Royal College and I was a, a student at, the, at St. Martin's. Just getting reacquainted with his work and getting to know him was really important. 
And with Denzel, I recently discovered that you, in fact, gifted a one of his masterpieces from 1982 titled Three Wicked Men to the Tate for, for their collection. Why did you make... Why did you want to make sure his work was in that collection and to be seen by the public? Well, if it was up to me, I think huh. <laughs> I think many of his works should be in public collections. I think he's, you know, a really important painter and commentator. It's only recently that his work has become, you know, better known. And um, I mean, when I got to meet him finally, which was about, I guess, close to 10 years ago now, um, he still had pretty much 99% of every painting he'd ever made um, back to all these, I would call masterpieces that he made in the late seventies, early eighties, one of which was three wicked men, but that's one of, I would say 10 paintings, which are equally um, iconic, you know, at the end of the day, if you gift a painting to an institution like the Tate, it has to be chosen as if they're buying it. I mean, it's like, because otherwise every artist would just, gift works that they need to want it goes there's a lot of scrutiny involving in in, it they absolutely have to want it and i was so pleased that they absolutely wanted it (laughs) there's such a sense of generosity in 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 what you do um you also served as a trustee of the tate um from 1995 to 2000 you were also a professor at the dusseldorf kunst academy for 13 years ending in 2017. What did these different roles bring to your practice? I'm not teaching at the moment. Um, I did for many, many years. Before Dusseldorf, I was I taught in London for I can't remember, for a couple of decades. I think I taught for 36 years altogether. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and I remember actually one of my one of my tutors when I went to do my masters at, at Chelsea. He said to me, "You know, Peter, I'm not here. I'm not here just for you. You know, I'm here for me too." And I always remember that as. Um, at first, I thought that's a little bit strange. <laughs> yes, I thought I thought you're here just because you're getting paid. <laughs> no, but I mean, I understand totally what he means. There's you know, there's a lot to there's a lot to gain from um, you know that type of access to the artist studio and that type of dialogue that happens in the artist studio because you can't fake that. It only happens in those places. You know, even if, even when you get older and you've left college and you go and visit a friend's studio, there's always a there's always a different type of there's always some little agenda there other than just purely visiting a studio. You might be being careful not to say certain things or whatever or making comments. But with, when it's a student's studio, that I think it's, um, it's different. And, um, you know, you open up, I like to open up a dialogue with a group so that the whole group would try and get, try and get the whole group talking. And it was like a kind of discussion, not just about the person's work you're viewing, but about ultimately all of our works at the same time and i think you you know you you learn about you learn how to move forward in your own work through looking at others and, and dealing with the the struggles or the successes in other people's work while we often see your works on museum walls your work is quite modest in its roots drawing inspiration from underground record covers and vintage photographs did your mind always work across these different disciplines and weave them together in this way? Which is to say, you know, you have a way of looking at things without hierarchy. I think it did, because I think that even when I went to art school, one of the first etchings I made when I first started was um, of Charlie Parker from a, a record cover, um, The Saxophonist. And uh, there was often, or like I made, I made paintings of, like the world's saxophone quartet 
and uh, different bands I would be seeing, or there'd be references like it to, to lyrics in hip hop. And there would be paintings, whole paintings made based on um, early hip hop tracks, you know, in the, in the early eighties. I, mean, I think that was, I found hip hop was so visual and um, so sort of um, inventive and anarchic that it, it gave license for similar visual thoughts, you know, and, um, and then, you know, as, as it just evolved, it depended on what I was listening to, depended on what I was watching. Yeah. My, my work was always open to, um, the outside world really. Yeah. It was never art for art's sake in that respect. I'm sad to say we haven't much time left today. Um, we've talked primarily about your work in the past. So I suppose my final question to you, Peter, is what about what you're up to now and or working on in the coming year? Well, I'm making new paintings for a show in London that will open in February um, next year. Um, I can't quite say yet where it is, but um, I'm, it, I'm excited about that. I'm paintings that I started... I guess I've started over the last five or so years. Um, I'll be finishing them over the next um, 12 months and then I'll show them in London in 2023. Well, it sounds like a huge show. Um, I know many of us will be eager to follow what that is and we'll be on the lookout. Peter, I can't thank you enough for speaking with me today. Thanks very much. And thank you all for listening. Join us on Dior Common Thread on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. 